The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Father, thank you so much that you are victorious. You have conquered the grave. Thank you that uh, you call us your people and you are our God. We pray that you would be glorified and honored today as we hear your word. Help us to be faithful to listen and respond. It's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen. Amen. So we are continuing on in Esther. Um, but as we go there, we kind of ended last week um, with this cliffhanger. And it just reminded me, do you guys have any favorite uh, TV shows that you watch that you just like can't stop watching, right? Anybody else guilty of that? Am I the only one that like you like watch one of these, you know, like sitcom or like these series and you're like, I just got to know like what happens next time. You know, I, I remember when I was watching Lost and, you know, I don't know if any of you went through that. I mean, I was watching Lost and it's like six seasons and they're so long, but I'm like, I got to know. Like, is, it, is Jack going to die? Like, is, you know, like what happens? And so, you know, it just these cliffhangers that kind of pull you in because you just have to know. And that's what Esther really is. is Esther is like this Old Testament kind of like drama, you know, and chapter four left with kind of this cliffhanger of we gotta know like Esther's like if I perish I perish she's about to step before the king and then it's like and you know next chapter you gotta wait a week and so you know and and so today we get to pick up on that and uh we're gonna be in Esther chapter 5 verses 1 through 14 and uh and we kind of get to see what happens and so um, if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles uh, and follow along with me. Um, I'm going to read, and then we're going to come back, and we've got about uh, four or so comments that we're going to talk through in the passage. So Esther chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. He likes parties. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Verse 9, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh, 
And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. All right, so we see how the story continues and another cliffhanger, right? Um, And so... Let's go through, we've got four comments. I'm going to continue to read this. You know, I read it first so that we would kind of hear the context and we're going to read it again and kind of stop and, uh, and comment on, on it. So verse one, I'm going to read verses one, uh, verse one and kind of talk about it. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace now, we know how the story goes. We know how the end of the chapter goes. And so we kind of brush over this and we think, oh, you know, Esther gets favor. But I want us to stop for a second. I want us to put ourselves in Esther's shoes. Now, remember, Esther is an orphan, right? Which means her parents died. And so she at least faced some significant, some time where she faced this realization of her being alone in the world. Mordecai took her in quickly. But, but to, to be in that reality of losing your parents, of feeling that you're all alone in the world. Now Mordecai takes her in and, and he cares for her, but she likely knew what it meant to, to have some kind of hunger, right? To feel alone and isolated, to not have the provisions of the world. And now she goes from being an orphan, right? To being queen through this whole process. And Esther is now going before the king because if she doesn't, her people are going to perish. Her people are going to die. And this is the only road, the only route that she can see. But let us think about what's going on here. So you would think, well, this isn't a big deal, right? I mean, I just go to my husband, I talk to him, and he, you know, the whole thing's, you know, kind of a wash. But remember, Xerxes, uh, Xerxes likes his women looking beautiful, right? He likes them in a certain appearance. And so Esther is fasted for three days and three nights, right? And so this is a total fast. And so it shows that Esther's no longer seeking simply to please Xerxes, but she's actually seeking to please the king behind the scene, right? I mean, for a year, they had them doing beauty treatments. They had them eating the right food so that they would look just right. Now, I don't know if you've ever fasted, you know, if you've gone without water for three days, but you don't look full and plump in appearance. (laughs) And so Esther's doing this because she's seeking seeking the king behind the scene. But she, she comes to the king not in, you know, not probably radiant and, and all of her, you know, beauty. She, you know, I'm sure she's not looking terrible, but she's not putting her best foot forward in that realm. But she hasn't been seen by the king for over 30 days, right? And the king doesn't sleep alone, remember? He, he's got women with him. So Esther probably has been out of favor or there's something going on because he hasn't called the queen. Now, not only that, but last time, last time the queen questioned the king's command, she got kicked out, Right? I mean, last time Vashi stood up and was like, hey, I know that you've commanded me to come, but I'm not doing it. You know, the king kicked her out and she was, you know, we learned that she likely lived in isolation. She was never going to marry another man. She was kind of set aside, set apart. And so 
there's a, there's a you know, past precedence for what happens when you question the king's command, and she's coming to do just that. King, I know that you've made this command not just in your throne room, but you've made it throughout the whole empire that this is going to happen. And I'm coming not only uh, when I seem out of favor, but I'm coming to a place where I'm not allowed. Right? This is a place that I'm not allowed. There's only seven officials that were allowed in there. And some of the uh, imagery uh, of the Persian empire had the king sitting in his throne with his scepter and an axeman behind it if anybody entered unbidden. There would be an execution and so she's going into uh, to, to tell the king that you need to change your command in a place that she doesn't belong. Not only that, but she's going to reveal that she's been lying to him for five years. I know that you think you know who I am, but let me, let me kind of throw this. You actually don't know who I am at all. I'm actually a Jew, the people that you're set out to destroy. And so she has all of these things that are going to be revealed. Now, that's not a recipe for success, you know, and so she's stepping in this with, with fear, probably with trepidation, but, but yet with conviction and with courage. She's choosing to take a step out in faith because she doesn't know what's going to happen, right? I mean, it says that she enters and she waits there, and, and it's the moment of faith, the moment where she steps out into the unknown. She doesn't know what's going to happen. After this point, it's not in her control anymore. She can't affect what's going to happen the Bible talks about faith a lot. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. See, Esther had to choose to step out in faith, to say, I no longer have control over the situation, over my future, over what's going to happen to me or to my people. And so I'm, I have to walk by faith that God knows and God cares. And you see, this is the, the life that God calls us to, right? God calls us to this walk of faith where we are called to step out into circumstances and into futures that we don't know and that we can't control. I mean, what does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, if you're here and you don't know Christ, what it means to be a Christian is it means to step out into a situation that you don't know. Right? When you come to know Christ, there's all kinds of fear. Is it going to change me? I like having control of my life. I like having these things. And I don't know if I want to give that up because the future seems scary. The future seems unknown to me. And, and Christ says, listen, trust me. Step out and, and choose to believe that, that giving up control of your life for my control, for my leadership is going to be far better. And he asks you to take that, to take that step of faith. God calls us to take all kinds of steps of faith. Maybe you're praying and you're saying, man, I feel like the Lord's calling our family in a, in a new direction, a new vision. And it, and it might be scary and you might not know. And God's calling you to say, listen, trust me and to take a step of faith. Maybe God calls, you know, for you in, to step out into a ministry that he's leading, that he wants you to move into. And, and you're saying, man, I don't know with, with the time, with the energy, I don't know what, but, but God says, trust me. And he wants you to, to take a step of faith. Maybe God's calling you to be generous and he's calling you to give. Maybe it's to an individual. Maybe it's of your time. Maybe it's of your talent. And you say, I don't know. I, that's, that seems to be scary. I don't, I don't know if I necessarily want to be vulnerable, if I want to open myself up like that because it seems safer. It seems more comfortable for me to be here. And God is calling you to say, step out into the unknown and trust me. Trust that I love you more than you love yourself. That I know better for you than you know for yourself. 
Maybe God's calling you to take, take a step out in faith because he's calling you to confront evil. He's saying, listen, there's something going on in your life, in your workplace, in your family, in your friendships that I'm calling you to, to take a step out in faith. I'm calling you to speak truth in love. And, and it might scare you because I don't want to lose this friendship. I don't want to lose this relationship, but I know that God's calling me to love him more and to trust him more. And God's calling you to take a step of faith, to trust him with what seems to be unknown. Maybe God's calling you and saying, listen, I want to call you to be a missionary. I want to call you out. Maybe it's, it's, I want to call you to be a missionary in your neighborhood as we do in Bless, but maybe he's saying, listen, I want to call you to be greater, uh, to, to use you to be a, a greater ambassador to my kingdom. And that looks like this part of the world. That looks like this people group. And I want you to pray for them. I want you to sacrifice for their salvation that you might know them. Whether that's moving there, whether that's supporting financially, maybe God's calling you to step a faith into that direction. Maybe God's calling you to take a step of faith because there is hidden sin in your life. It's hidden and nobody knows about it and you've suppressed it and you've put it down there so deep and so dark that you've almost forgotten about it and you say, nobody, nobody needs to know about this and if anybody knew about this, what would happen? What they would think of me? How would they treat me? How could, you know? And God's calling you to take a step of faith and to trust that he knows better for you and that he wants to free you and he wants to use you, and he has health in mind if you would but trust him and bring what is in the darkness out into the light. And he's saying, take a step of faith. Step out into the unknown and trust that I know the future. Maybe he's calling you, as Roger shared, to share the gospel. Maybe it's with a friend, maybe it's with a family, and, and you're, you're afraid. I don't want to ruin this relationship. I don't want them to think that I'm different. I don't want to seem as, as weird or as you know, odd. And God's calling you and saying, listen, care more about their salvation than, than how, they, how they think of you. Choose to love them more than you love yourself and trust that I, I know better. Right? We're not called to do it foolishly, discern in wisdom, but, but step out in faith. There's an old movie, uh, Indiana Jones. Um, so you guys all seen that, right? I mean, I, I looked at it, it's, it's 1989, so it's actually been a while. I was born in 1988, so, you know, um, <laughs> So it's, it's, old for, it's old for me. But uh, Indiana Jones and, uh, and the Last Crusade. <laughs> Sorry, I'm the, you know, everybody else is like. Uh, but Indiana Jones and, and the Last Crusade. And uh, in Indiana Jones, he's on like the third of, a, of the trials. He's trying to get to the Holy Grail. And, uh, and he, he gets through this pathway and it opens up and it, there's this huge chasm between the, his you know, exit and the entrance to the next stage, to the next layer. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? There's no pathway forward. You know, my whip's not going to stretch that long. Nothing works, you know. He's out of options. And, and he opens up the grail and it talks about, you know, walking by faith. And he, and he gets it and he goes, I need to take a leap of faith. That's the only way. And so it looks blind. It looks unseen. It looks like he's stepping out into the chasm and he's going to fall to his death, right? And, but he knows. He goes, I'm, I'm choosing. So he steadies his heart and he takes a foot and he steps out. And as he steps out, he lands on this path that was hidden before that he never could have seen because the crusaders built it to match perfectly in with the opposite wall. And as he steps on it, he looks sideways and he sees this perfect bridge leading to the doorway ahead. And he never would have seen it. He never could have known that it was there if he had not taken a step of faith. But there it was, clear as day, the bridge that led to his next path. And it was only by taking a step in faith 
that he saw that it was there. And so too, God has a plan and has a path for our life. And we are not able to perceive it or see it in the moment, but he calls us as an act of faith to step out into the unknown because he has a plan and a purpose that he's working. And that's what Esther is doing here. And that's what we see. We continue on verse two. It says, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even, half the king, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It will be granted to you. And what is your request? Even half of my kingdom, it shall be, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. The second thing that we see is that Esther, not only does she act in faith, but Esther acts in shrewdness and in wisdom. Right? What was the purpose of Esther fasting for three days and three nights without food or water? It was to seek the Lord. It was to seek wisdom in her approach. Now, we see the Bible commends all kinds of different approaches. I mean, we see that oftentimes it approaches this direct approach. You know, you see Daniel, you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they take this very direct approach. This is where we are. This is where we're standing. You know, and a lot of guys, that's kind of like, you know, we want to make that stand. But the Bible also commends Esther and when she does this in a very shrewd and indirect approach, right? And oftentimes it means men... We have to learn from our, our ladies sometimes, right? And sometimes they approach things in a wise way. And Esther takes this, this wise approach because she steps into the throne room. And in the first couple of verses, we see that she puts on royalty, right? That's what it means when it, it, the first verse is all about, you know, the throne room and she puts on, you know, the queen and the king. And it's all these imageries, uh, this imagery of royalty. And so Esther knows, I'm going to dress as the queen. I'm going to put on the royal, you know, garb so that he approaches and sees me as someone to respect. And so she's not foolish in how she approaches the king. She's thought through it. Now, it doesn't mean that she doesn't step out in faith, but, but she doesn't mistake faith for foolishness or laziness or stupidity. And so she, she does and she thinks through and she prays through what is wise in this. And we believe that the Lord is leading her in each of these steps. But she puts on her queen's attire and she steps into this, you know, taking that step of faith and stands before the, Lord, and stands before the king. And the king says, gives her the scepter. says, what is it that you want? Now, why didn't Esther, why didn't Esther at that moment just say, sweet, the king's gracious. He's in a very gracious mood. I should just ask right now. Instead, she doesn't. She says, you, you know what? I would, I would love to throw you a party. I know that you love parties, King. And so I would love to throw you a party. I would love to honor you. And also, can you just bring Haman along too? I would love to see Haman as well to the party. That would be, that's my wish and my request right now is I just want to throw you a party and I want Haman to come too. And so, you know, she throws a banquet and she's honoring the king and Haman is there and, and they're greatly honored. And, and once again, the king is in this really, you know, gracious posture, generous posture. And he says, Esther, this is a great party. Thank you so much. You know, I'm, I, half my kingdom is yours. And it seems like she's about to ask, right? She says, if you would grant, then 
And it's almost like there's this pause, and then she goes, then come to my banquet tomorrow that I want to throw for you. And notice how subtle it is, but yet also how important this is. And we believe the Lord's leading her in this, in this wisdom. But hear what she says. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, you almost feel like there's a pause in the story. If I have favor, found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow, and I will do as the king has said. Do you know what she did there? She said, if you... If you come tomorrow, by coming tomorrow, you have promised to grant my request. If it please the king to grant my request, then come tomorrow. Right? I mean, she's tied up his presence of coming to the banquet with him already promising to grant her request. And so she's wrapped up the affirmation of the king in his presence at the banquet. Do you see the shrewdness there? Do you see the wisdom that God gave in that move? And it's a subtle, it's an indirect approach, but yet it's a wise approach in that. And the, another question is, why does she bring Haman along? I mean, all she needs is the king. You know, I mean, why does she even bother with Haman? You know, I mean, wouldn't that kind of throw a wrench in her plans? Now Haman gets to argue her, his side and she gets to argue her side. You know, why bring Haman? But it shows that, that if the king agrees, he agrees not just before her, but before one of his top officials. And that his word is something that he has to stick to because of his pride. And so she does it in a way that binds him to that. And obviously all this is done in prayerful wisdom, you know, what the Lord's leading in that. But it, it encourages us that we would seek to have wisdom and discernment in how we approach situations and how we approach people, right? That it's not just one approach meets all. That, that this is teaching us that how we approach is, is also important in what we're doing, right? It's not just what we do and why we do it, but, but God cares about how, how we approach things and how we approach people. And this means this should put us in a posture of humility that we have, that we can learn from other people and their approaches, right? I'm so thankful for my wife and for our differences that when we got married, I have a a, a unique approach to situations at times. You know, I have my mindset and I see through my eyes and my perspective. But in marriage, one of the beautiful things is that as I'm closely yoked to my wife and, and even in deep friendships, when we are really close to one another, we start to see how they respond. We start to see how they interact with other people, how they approach situations. And it gives us this alternate perspective. And it says, man, now I can see how they would approach this. Right now, I mean, as I've been married to my wife more and more, I can think through, here's how I would naturally approach things. But like, Emily would approach it like this. And I think sometimes that's a better approach, you know? And so like, it gives me that wisdom. But here's the thing. The Bible wants us to be so closely related to Jesus, so intimately connected to him, that that we think through not just how would I approach things, but we start to think through how is it that Christ approaches things? How is it he would approach this situation? What is his wisdom in this? And so he asks, you know, James, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without fault. And so as we approach all these complex situations in life, right? Because you've got to think, this is a complex situation, right? This is a hard situation that Esther is stepping into. It's not just a black and white thing. I mean, her life is on the line. Her people's lives are on the line. And so too, we step into situations that maybe aren't this dire and, and massive, but we step into, into situations all the time in our lives that are, that are blurry, that are gray, that we're wondering how do we approach this. And God wants to give us wisdom. He wants to help us in how we approach, not just if we approach. And so let us come to God and let us learn from others. God has given us a community of people that we are to learn from. We have much to learn from one another continue on. 
In verse nine, it says, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gates. What we see here, Haman is the archetype villain in the story of Esther, right? We see it all throughout. But one of the things that Haman is, is a primary picture of is what happens when pride consumes our life. What happens when pride directs and guides our every decision? And Haman shows us this, par none, is that think about Haman's both, you know, first, what's pride? What is pride? Pride is an undue understanding of our self-importance. It's an elevation of the, of the self. And, and when we elevate the self, when in our own eyes we are seen as superior to other people, we're constantly going to be putting down others. We're constantly going to be looking down upon other people because pride in its very essence is competitive, Right? Pride doesn't care how much you have. It cares how much more you have than the person next to you. Right? And whether that's finances, whether that's status, or whether that's character. Right? I mean, we see that the Pharisees are extremely prideful because they are more holy, more convicted, more disciplined than the people around them. And pride is, pride is by its essence divisive. And so we see Haman, Haman's joy is found in his status. He walks away from the king joyful, but immediately immediately he becomes depressed, right? You see this volatility in Haman. And so I, I just want to run through a couple of things that, that we learn about pride from Haman's example in the story. First, we see that pride takes offense easily. Pride takes offense easily, right? I mean, if you think about, look at all that Haman has. I mean, Haman is second in the kingdom. He has extremely wealthy. He's got a, a large family. You know, he's got status. He's got possessions. He has all of these things. And yet he walks by one person, one person in the whole kingdom that doesn't do what Haman wants. And all of a sudden, he is massively offended. He flies off the chain. And so we see that pride, when pride is in our life, it, it makes us offended easily. Is that the slightest thing can set us off because we're constantly looking at the faults and the failures of other people. So pride, pride takes offense easily. Second thing we see is pride is emotionally volatile. Pride is emotionally volatile. Haman goes from joyful to full of wrath and despair. And why? It's because his self-worth, his identity is found in his circumstances. It's found in who he's around. And so when other people are honoring him, when his circumstances bode well for him, Right? People are honoring him. People are loving him. People are giving him praise. He feels valued and honored. He's full of joy. But the second his circumstances change, the second someone dishonors him, the second someone doesn't do what he wants, you see his emotions fly off the chart. And they go there. And, and that's what pride does in us. Pride makes us emotionally volatile. We can't stand somebody doing something that would contradict our will or our way, that someone would dare to go against us. How dare they? Do not know who I am? 
how could they violate my rights? And everything becomes an attack against us. It becomes personal, everything does. And our emotions are on our sleeves, is that they just, they rotate violently. And so pride breeds emotional volatility. Another thing that we see is that pride finds its boast in, the, in our performance, our possessions, and our positions in life. Pride finds its worth in our performance, our possessions, and our positions. Think about when Haman is depressed, when Haman is bummed out, he's mad, he's angry. He gathers all of his friends and his family, and what does he do? He tries to encourage himself. He tries to comfort himself. In what way? He starts recounting, look at all the positions I have. Think about, man, I just need to think about how important I am because of all the jobs that I have. That shows my self-worth, is my position in life, that I'm this kind of person because I do these kinds of things. It's not only that, but think about all my possessions. Think about how wealthy I am. Think about all the, the land that I have. Think about my sons, you know, my family, all these things, the, the possessions I have. That, that guards me. That says that I'm an important person, and so I am. And he thinks about his, uh, his position and his performance in life. He says, think about my, my performance. I have outperformed all the other officials. I am, I am far better than everyone else around me. And so you, t- you can see, what is it that you use to comfort yourself when life throws you a curveball? When, y- when you have encountered something difficult, something hard, what's your self-talk? What do you use to, to encourage yourself, to comfort yourself? And that'll show you whether your identity is found in things that are worthwhile or whether your identity is found in, in things that will destroy you. Is your identity found in what Christ has done for you and his love towards you? Or is it found in your performance, your ability to be better than the person around you, your job title, your income, your way of life? What happens when those things are stripped? Another thing we see is that pride is obvious to everyone but ourselves. Pride is obvious to everyone but ourselves. I'm sure that everyone else around Haman saw and knew how extremely prideful he was, but I'm sure for him it would have been a great shock. I'm not prideful. How dare you call me such a thing, right? Pride is, is, is open and obvious to everyone, but it seems like it invades our life as a secret and that we don't know or see it in ourselves. And this is why we need a community. We need people around us that love us enough to where they will call out our pridefulness. And pride is in all of us. The question is whether we realize it or not. The next thing we see is that pride leads to destruction. The end of pride is destruction. Proverbs 18, 12 says, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but, with, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The Bible talks over and over again about the, the end of pride is destruction. And we see it with Haman is that his heart was haughty. He thought that he was so important and it, because of that, it brought about his destruction and that the end of pride in our lives will be destruction. God calls us and he longs that we would repent, that we would acknowledge that we struggle with pride and that we find often ourselves too important and he would call us to find our identity not in our performance but in his performance and what he has done for us. It's a far more secure identity, one that doesn't go up and down with your circumstances and one that will garrison you against attacks. Continue on. Verse 14, it says, Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Who needs enemies with friends like that? 
right? I mean, who needs enemies with friends like that? And so we, we see that the counsel, the friendships that we keep can lead to either salvation or destruction. The, the, the friendships, the counsel that we keep around us can lead us to either salvation or destruction. And so Haman goes and he is in this arrogant, prideful posture. He's in a sinful, broken posture. And he goes and he starts flaunting, he starts boasting. And it, what do his friends do? What do his friends and family do? They go, you know what, Haman? You're right. You're a pretty awesome guy. Nobody's really as important as you. You know, I mean, how dare, how dare Mordecai ever do that? You know, you ought to make him an example. Nobody ever treats you like that again. As soon as, you know, just put a big old pole up 75 feet high and impale him on it. Everybody will see. Nobody will ever treat you like that again. That sounds like a great idea, Haman. You know, like you're powerful. You can do it. You're, you're the best. And they go behind him and they give him the worst advice possible, right? I mean, their advice encouraged him and supported him and directly led to his destruction, right? We learn later that he is, he is impaled upon his own stake, his own gallows that he sought to impale Mordecai upon. And so the Bible calls us and it gives great warning and great encouragement that, that we are to be wise in the counsel that we keep and the friendships that we have. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three it says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 25, 27, five through six, better is open rebuke that hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs thirteen twenty. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And Proverbs twelve twenty six. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. The Bible warns us over and over again to be careful who you let into your life. And I've seen it. It causes me it's caused me great grief and great mourning in my life to see people that slowly walk away from the church. They grow distant more and more and the people that they begin to let into their life are the people that only reinforce their sinfulness. I only want people that say yes to me. I only want people that support me. I only want people that are gonna tell me what I wanna hear. And so more and more, their heart becomes hardened in sin because they only allow people into their life that are going to feed their ego and boost their self-esteem in the way that they see fit. And nobody around them truly loves them enough to say, listen, you need to repent and confess your sin so that your marriage will be saved. You're not always right. And in fact, there are some times that you're wrong and that you need to make amends. That will love them enough to confront them. They say, you know what? You, you don't need to gossip about your boss behind their back. You don't need to compromise when you're on the job because that's what's easier. All the people that they keep in their company just continue to to, to speak into their sin rather than speak against their sin. And slowly it leads to the road of destruction because they just surround themselves with people that care more about flattery and more about that person's immediate opinion of them than their eventual and ultimate good. And so the Bible warns us and it says, the first question is, what kind of friend are you? It, the Bible, it, it says that we are called to be these kinds of friends if we want these kinds of friends. If we want people that love us enough that they're going to stick with us, that they're going to speak up when there's sin in our life, are we those kinds of friends? Do we love people enough to where we'll speak up if we see brokenness in there? Not in a, in a way that we're being a jerk for Jesus, right? I mean, like, we don't need to be, I mean, right, we talked about how we approach people is equally important as why and what we're approaching them for. And so how we approach people is important. But do you? Do you approach people? Do you love people? Do you speak the truth in love? Because you care more about their ultimate good than their just immediate opinion of you? And so are we these kinds of friends? And second, are we 
are we seeking out these kinds of friends? Right? Or are we really comfortable having the people around us that kind of feed our ego? Are we willing to step out and, and say, man, I, I want those kinds of friends. I want to be that kind of friend. We need community. We are not an island to ourselves, and you aren't either. You need people in your life. This is why we do life groups. This is why we believe community is so vital. Is that, Listen, God's in community. You're not better than him, okay? You need community. God has made us like that. And so we need to be yoked together with one another that we might help each other in this struggle of life. And the ultimate thing as we close is that God has not left us alone. Jesus comes and he says, in John 15, verses 13 through 14, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus comes and he says, he does the polar opposite. He doesn't say, listen, I'm gonna flatter you and I'm gonna boost your ego and go on your merry way to destruction. Jesus says, listen, while you were my enemy, while you were postured against me to kill me, to take my throne, to take control of your own life, I said, I see you as my friend and I will lay my life down for you. I will give my life for you. And so before we can ever become the kind of friends that we wanna be, we have to receive the friendship of Jesus. We have to realize that we have a friend that sits closer than their brother. That he, he has given his life for us and that he is always there for us and he will never let us down. He will never let us down. And so if you're here, I want to invite you to receive his friendship, to receive his love, to believe that he has given his life for you, that he would encourage you and empower you to be that kind of friend, to lay your life down for others. Let us pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word, for how it encourages us and gives us an example and, and ultimately points us to you, Jesus. That you are the true friend. You are the one that has laid your life down for your people while we were enemies. Help us to receive your friendship and in turn to reflect that kind of friendship to others. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.